Hello, friends. Welcome to season two of the 21st Century Farm D podcast. My name is Brooke Griffin, and I'm your host. This season, you will hear from inspiring pharmacists who have an important message for us all. Let's get right to it. In this episode, I'd like to introduce you to Tanya Chowdhury, pharmacist and manager of regulatory affairs at Horizon Therapeutics. Listen to her story about how one international trip and answering one question changed everything. Hi, Tanya. How are you? Hi, Brooke. I'm well. How are you? Good. Thank you so much for being here today. I cannot wait to learn more about your story. Thank you. I'm really excited to share it. And thank you for the opportunity uh, to be a part of this. I'm so glad you're here. And I usually like to start by asking my guests the story behind their name. Would you mind sharing? Yeah, sure. So my name is pretty um, basic. It's Tanya, first name. Um, One thing that I think is unique about my name is kind of the origin and a little bit of why my parents chose that name. Um, You know, my mom was born and raised here all her life, but my dad was an immigrant and came to the States. So I am Pakistani by my nationality, you know, American Pakistani by nationality. Um, But the name Tanya is actually pretty diverse amongst different cultures. So I've had Russian colleagues ask me, you know, is it short for Tatiana or anything like that? Um, A lot of, I have a few Latin American friends as well, you know, who also have that first name. And you know, it's not. It's just a normal Pakistani uh, name. But the thing was is that my parents really wanted to take the time to think about how would my name kind of be immersed in the Western culture. And I think that just kind of goes back to, you know, the steps that our parents take to think about these things for their children when they're thinking about their own success in the future. So that's just something a little bit unique about why my name was chosen to be something that's versatile in both uh, Western and Asian culture. And yeah, just that's about it. I love that story. And I love the way you phrase it in the way that your parents were kind of thinking down the line. Like what is her success and career path going to look like and what's a name that fits that, but also honors the culture that we come from. And I never thought about it that way, that Tanya is a name that could be basically found in multiple families. Yeah. Like regardless of the background. Yeah. Like I remember growing up with uh, friends who didn't really identify with any particular culture and they, they had, their name was Tanya. So I I think that's fascinating and I I love hearing your side of the story. So thank you so much for sharing. Of course. So we connected, I believe through LinkedIn and then we talked a little bit over email and I know you're a member now of our Facebook group and you can probably see that I'm building this network of a community, networking, personal and professional development. How did you first discover our group? You know, I first discovered your group actually by just seeing your LinkedIn post. And I also noticed just the different podcasts and the different guests that were on it. Um, I think that one thing that really resonated with me was the diversity of guests that you had. 
Um, and I think that's really a testament to our profession at large, right? Um, there are so many different facets of pharmacy and so many different opportunities for our profession. So to really have one network where we can kind of all engage and share our abilities and our opportunities with one another, um, I thought that was really great. And it you know, made me want to reach out uh, because that's something personally that I think is important for our profession too. Wow, I really appreciate you saying that because it was intentional to try to highlight people of different backgrounds, people with different experiences, uh, people with different life lessons, because we're all bringing this to the pharmacy table to work as a team to advance our profession. So why not take a moment and just highlight some of those stories? So I, I really appreciate you saying that. And I'm glad, I'm glad you noticed it. Of course, yeah. So over email, we talked a little bit about your unique career path, but I thought we could start by just going back a little bit and telling us what you thought you wanted to do as a child and maybe even through high school. Yeah, no, for sure. So pharmacy was something that I always kind of had in the background of my mind. Um, you know, I started working at Walgreens as a technician. This was like, I was grandfathered in before all the laws changed. So I was 16 years old and I was a technician behind the Walgreens pharmacy counter. Um, started that my junior year and I thought, okay, you know, this is it. I'm going to do pharmacy. This is what I want to do. And then I went to undergrad and I, you know, naturally started talking to other people, had different experiences, joined different clubs. And I thought that perhaps medicine would be the route for me instead. It was still science related, still patient focused. It was, you know, but maybe a little bit more involved in patient care that maybe I wanted, whatever it was. Um, so I pursued medicine. I took the MCAT twice. I took some time off to do research at the different hospitals in the Chicagoland area where I'm from. Um, and I really tried to, you know, boost up my CV ready for that medical school application. So I did that. I um, got into a uh, post-bac program. It's called the Biomedical Sciences Program at Rosalind Franklin University. So it's like an MSMD program where you can kind of jump into the Chicago Medical School as you continue with your master's or what have you. I think about six months into that program, I decided this is not for me. Uh, this is really not the route for me. This is not something that I am truly finding a passion in. And um, it was a trial. It was a trial for me to see really what I would thrive in. And from there, I had made the decision to leave the program and to apply to pharmacy school. Now, mind you, while I'm still doing all this research and doing my MCATs and doing all this stuff, I was still that technician at Walgreens. Um, I never let that job go. And so to me, that's kind of why I was like, you know what, pharmacy is a good profession. It's stable. But is there something more? Is there something different that I can do? Um, because I did enjoy the patient-facing side, but what I really enjoyed was really understanding how things made a difference to patients from a 3,000-foot level. And that's when I started talking to a few folks, and they're like, hello, you live in Chicago. Like, Estellas is there. Abby is there. Takeda is there. Well, it was, you know, back then. Um, and they were like, why don't you reach out? Because there are so many pharmacists that work in these companies, and I had no idea. Um, so I applied to pharmacy school, got into pharmacy, and from there, the rest is history. Wow. Okay. I have so many questions, but I'm hoping we can just um, take a step back and talk about when you were already enrolled in medical school, like mm -hmm. signed, sealed, delivered. You were there and then decided this wasn't for me. And I just want to ask you another question about this because I feel like sometimes uh, the younger generation today, the students of today feel like 
I'm already six months in. I'm already six months behind. I should have thought of all these things ahead of time. I feel like I'm starting over. How did you get over that mental hurdle? Because I think that will mean something to our listeners. Yeah, I will tell you complete transparency. I had that hurdle myself, especially when I made the decision to leave um, and presenting that news to my family wasn't easy. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you. Um, how did I get through it? Honestly, I repeatedly had to remind myself that I am the one who has to wake up and go to work every day. I'm the one who has to truly enjoy what I do. And as much as I love to give back to patients and help in that capacity, the question for me was how? Not just, okay, I like to help people, right? Because I have the science background and, and that's what healthcare providers do. It was really more about how and how can I make that impact, not just for today, not just for tomorrow, but that everlasting impact. And to me, that's what allowed me to say, it's okay. It's okay if you take some time to think about really what you want to do. It's okay to think about how you're going to make that lasting impact if that is something you are genuinely, you know, that's genuinely important to you. And it was important to me. And so that's, that's really how I got over that hurdle is just constantly reminding myself that at the end of the day, you have a goal and it's okay to figure it out slowly. You know, everybody's on a different level. You know, it doesn't really matter if you get there tomorrow, if you get there five years from now. Yes, I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that because I think that we are sometimes paralyzed by some of those negative thoughts and some of those paralyzing fears. Like I have to express, express this to my family mm -hmm. and how are they going to take the news? They've been some more supporting me in a certain way this whole time. Yeah. And I think it's really mature of you the way that you thought about that it's not just about getting to the finish line and yes, I have a job and it's a stable job and it's well-paying and it's in the science field. So it hit most of my boxes, but really you took the approach of, no, I want to be happy. So what is it about this science medical patient interface that makes me happy? And let me find that. Yep, absolutely. That's really hit the nail on the head. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Okay. So here's what I'm really curious about because we're going to talk all about your industry experience, but it sounds like from what you just said, you were even attuned to this fellowship industry idea even before you got to pharmacy school. That's, that's pretty right. unique. <laughs> it's unique, but it's rare. I like to remind students that you don't need to know that industry is what you want to be successful in the field. Um, so my story just kind of happened to work out that way, but yeah, it was something that I walked into the doors of UIC and I knew, Hey, when I graduate, I want to be in pharma. Okay. So you knew that when you were approaching your rotations and your final year that you were going to be looking for postgraduate opportunities in industry, most yes. likely a fellowship. Yes. Okay. Yes. What would you say if for students who are interested in pursuing fellowship, what are some things they could do even as a second year, third year mm -hmm. to kind of solidify, is this what I really want? How do I find out more before yeah. they get to that fourth year and start yeah. the application cycle begins? Absolutely. So, you know, one thing that I think um, is slowly changing is the overall support and environment in pharmacy schools at large. Um, you know, I have talked to many students who are like, oh, but you know, I only know about clinical or community and my school doesn't really have many opportunities, right? Like that's something that we hear a lot. Um, but I will say since graduating, I think that 
that mantra is changing or has changed, which is really, really uh, positive to hear. Um, I think as a second or third year, students can really rely on a whole bunch of resources. First and foremost, your school organizations. Um, obviously, I am a, uh, you know, pr a proponent for the industry pharmacist organization, IPHS. I do work with them closely still. But, you know, there's IPHO, there's AMCP, there's DIA. Um, there's even just other leadership forums that many from the industry come just to talk about their careers. I think it's important for students just to kind of reach out to these resources, see what they have to offer. Another thing that I think is really important is networking. We all hear it again and again, pharmacy is a small world. And it truly is. And I'll tell you that the industry itself is 10 times smaller than that. Um, you know, and that can be across the nation. I have sent so many LinkedIn messages to people to say, hey, you know, I'm interested in regulatory. Do you mind setting up a 30 minute with me and just kind of talking me through what you do? And let me tell you, pharmacists are ready to do that. You know, they want to share about their experiences and encourage others if this is a career path for them. Um, you know, it may not be, um, but it's always good just to kind of gauge, right, and kind of get that, get that experience a little bit. And plus, you're building your network, and those skills are always very helpful. Um, in terms of pre-planning for graduation, having an internship under your belt is also very helpful. Um, and also setting up your rotations such that you are able to have a hands-on experience. Now, one thing I will say, which I think is a positive change, is that, you know, we have industry deserts, right? Uh, maybe a student who goes to school in Kansas or Arkansas or someplace like that may not readily be in the East Coast to walk on J and, you know, into J&J &J and do an internship. Um, and that's okay. I think, honestly, with COVID and the way things are going, I think companies are starting to see the value of a virtual experience. Um, and I think that's really helping out a lot of students. And the other thing is that many students don't know is a lot of these companies, even if you are in an area where, you know, you can't have that experience, they will pay for your housing for 12 weeks or whatever it is. Um, so you can come on campus and have that experience. And when I tell students that, they're like, oh, no way. And it's true. I remember when I did my internship at Takeda, that's exactly how it was. If you lived outside the 40-mile radius, they took care of your housing. Um, and so those types of opportunities, I think we need more awareness on. But these are the few things that I think second, uh, first and second years can certainly do. And third years should really focus on their rotations because I think a majority of schools kind of take away that summer to prepare for rotations as it is. I love all of those tips. I wrote them all down. Take advantage of your school organizations, networking, internships, setting up your rotations, trying to get some hands-on experience. If you're in an industry desert, take advantage of any virtual opportunities you have. And no, I did not know that about housing. Yeah. <laughs> that is amazing. That's an amazing tip right there. So thank you for sharing. Just circling back to the organizations, I've heard of IPHO, I've heard of AMCP. I think the third one you mentioned was DIAA. Do you mind describing what that is? Yeah, so I, that's the Drug Information Association, I believe. And I mean, the thing is, is that DIA definitely has a wide, you know, spectra of, of information and things like that they cover. But drug information is very important in the industry as well. And I do know many, many uh, conferences that happen that industry professionals, regulatory professionals go to attend to um, because they're very relevant, you know? And so, yeah, that's another one that I know a lot of schools do end up having. 
Okay, thank you for explaining that. So your first position after graduation was a fellowship with industry. So I want to hear a little bit about that fellowship. Maybe what was the uh, niche for that fellowship? Was it in a certain area? And was this the position that took you to Brussels for six months? And I want to hear more about that too. So anything you want to share yeah. about the position and then Brussels and all of that? Yeah, 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 for sure. So, um, so yes, the fellowship was with UCB um, and they are based in Atlanta. The program itself was a global regulatory affairs position with a focus on regulatory strategy, which is where I always wanted to end up, um, you know, in my career. So it was, a, I felt a really good fit for me. A few things about the program that I felt were beneficial to my development is the fact that it was two years, um, you know, I was able to complete a majority of it. The fact that it was rotational was also important to me. Um, so basically I had about 10 months of regulatory strategy specifically, and then I had another about five, five and a half months, five and a half months of regulatory advertising and promotion. And after that, then I had some time in regulatory chemistry manufacturing and controls. After that, I was supposed to have a experience in regulatory submissions. And then after that, I had an elective where I could just choose any function I wanted. It didn't have to be regulatory. Um, it could have been commercial or medical affairs or pharmacovigilance, whatever it was. Um, and so to me, having that rotational experience was crucial to my ability to understand the value of cross-functional roles in the industry. Um, you will know, notice that many functional areas, whether it's regulatory, medical affairs, or whatever it is, that's a very broad term. Underneath that, you have five, six different roles that you could be a part of. Um, and for me to get the exposure to all those different areas helped solidify the fact that regulatory strategy was for me, um, but also helped me understand why all of those other areas and roles are so important in regulatory at large. Um, in terms of my Brussels experience, yeah, so that was about, that was six weeks in Brussels. Um, and that experience was phenomenal. I really think that that's what helped me define my passion for regulatory strategy, but more importantly, it helped me understand what global drug development really meant. The thing is, is that we have disease states that not only affect certain populations in the states, obviously, but these are disease states that affect populations across the globe. What's interesting to know is that different health authorities in different countries take these disease states as different meanings as different subsets, as different aspects, right? Um, and to understand that the perspective of what a healthcare provider feels in a different country was interesting. And it was interesting because you then cater your development to how that's going to work in a few areas. How does it work for the healthcare provider? How does it work for the payer system in that country? But of course, most importantly, how is that going to affect the patient? Is the patient comfortable with the idea of this therapy? Is the patient aware that this opportunity exists for them? So that experience in Brussels really helped me understand what global strategy means, right? Obviously, you want to be able to have a certain message about your product to certain health authorities. In the United States, of course, we have the FDA, and in the European Union, we have EMA. 
Of course, things have changed a little bit with Brexit, but that's a whole other story. Uh, but, you know, along those lines, there are other health authorities across the nation with Japan, PMDA, Brazil, and Visa, you know, so on and so forth. Um, but the goal is to really get that product to the unmet patient population, unmet need, and to be able to cater a message to these different health authorities so they understand what we are trying to achieve for the patient is not always an easy thing to do. But the fact that it needs to be done in parallel is really what is challenging. Um, but to me, what I find to be the most uh, important part of it, at least as from a pharmacist perspective, is that all the decisions that we make, all the messaging that we drive is based on one thing and one thing only, and that is the science. That is the data, and that is the hard, cold facts of how this drug is affecting a patient. What is its safety? What is its efficacy? Let me tell you about the benefit risk profile, all those things. And the fact that that is driven by science is what is important to me. Um, and that's really what I was able to gain from my experience in Brussels. And I'll tell you a quick story and we can you know, move on from there. But basically, um, I was at a meeting um, in, in, over there in, in headquarters and I was just talking to someone about this, you know, and he had asked me, and he said, you know, you seem to be really uh, proactive in policy and change and, you know, innovation of science. That's really important to you. So let me give you a scenario. And he goes, I'm going to give you the best job offer. Okay. Like you're going to love the package, the salary, the location, everything about this job. And it's going to be in the industry, but your job role will be focused on the policy implementation and changes that are required for you know, the pharmaceutical industry to do what they want to do. Um, and he said, there's no science involved. So you're just really going to be focusing on the policy and the changes and things like that. Everything else is perfect, but no science. Would you take the job? And right away, I didn't even have to think 10 seconds. And I was like, no. <laughs> you know? And he was surprised. And he was like, why not? And that question of why not made me reflect as to truly, yeah, you know what, fine, why not? <laughs> and to me, that answer was because for me to instill trust, not only in patients, but in health authorities, I need science. I'm not going to just, you know, have something that I believe in because I think it's great. I want to prove to healthcare providers, to patients, to payers, to Congress, but most and to health authorities that you can trust us. We're doing the right thing. And the way that we do that, in my opinion, and, and of course from my experiences thus far, one way is through regulatory strategy. Um, so that's kind of what I gained. I left Brussels Airport saying, okay, that's it. This is gonna be what I wanna do. <laughs> Wow, what a powerful story. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I think what I heard you say is that when you think about global strategy, it's not just finding one way of doing something and implementing it in every country that this drug is available in. You have to tailor your strategy to each company depending on the healthcare provider's point of view, the way that patients accept and approach healthcare, their health literacy, the, the, the FDA and the equivalent organizations in other countries. I've been wondering if you can share just even just a very simplified example of something where it's different in the United States than it is in another country. Maybe it's the way that 
patients approach drug therapy or the way mm -hmm. a provider might offer drug therapy. Can, a very simplified example yeah. for us. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there are many <laughs> out there. Um, I think one of the areas that, you know, amongst the major markets that the pharmaceutical industry thrives in, um, the United States and Europe are obviously two very obvious regions, right? Um, amongst the others, um, the Asian area, the APAC region is what we call it, uh, Japan, China, Australia, so forth. That's also another very, very prom prominent area. So one example um, is just the fact that in the United States, there are many rheumatological diseases that are classified truly as diseases here in the States. And what do I mean by that? I mean that they have an ICD-9 code. You know, you can go to your doctor, you can see them, they'll put in that code so your insurance company sees it and says, okay, yes, this is a disease state. Here's, you know, here, okay, I covered your bill. And here's the medication that, you know, treats it and what have you. In Europe, a lot of the rheumatological diseases um, are not considered true diseases. They can be considered as manifestations of another disease. They can be considered as a small different subset of a disease. Um, and the issue with that is that your, the payers in Europe, which is a different system than we have here in the States, will therefore then not cover the drug you're trying to get approved in that country. Now, what's the problem with that? It's not the fact that, oh, okay, so we're not going to be able to make a profit off the drug in the country. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with the fact that we are preventing, we can't have access to the drug for our patients. And access is so important because you can go through all this work, all these trials and all that. But at the end of the day, if your patient isn't benefiting from it because they just can't get it in their hand or from the pharmacy, then it's, you know, you got to work harder to see what you can do to make that happen for them. Um, another thing is with these, you know, again, the example of the rheumatological diseases is that our rheumatologists in the States will also, right, be able to diagnose, they'll be able to see the, um, it, the association, which is called ACR, um, the College of Rheumatology, you know, they have guidelines to say, hey, if your patient presents with these four to five symptoms, they are classified as this. Whereas you look to Europe, which relies on ULAR, their guidelines won't even have any of that, right? So even if you can get the drug approved, you can get the access, will prescribers be identifying this disease state in their patients, yes or no? So these are the types of things that you kind of have to work through and think about. It's not just about, you know, it, it has to do with payers and access, but it also has to do with disease state education and management amongst, gosh, patients, amongst healthcare providers, amongst health authorities. There's just so much involved. Um, so I tried to make that a simple example. I hope it was. <laughs> Yeah, totally. I mean, you just blew my mind that a disease is not a disease is not a disease. Like just because yeah. you get diagnosed with something in one country does not mean it's automatically going to translate if, if you move or if you're trying to develop drugs in another nation or sell drugs in another country. That's, that's fascinating. Another thing I want to touch on that you talked about was going back to this question that the person asked you in Brussels yeah. about your perfect job, but it doesn't include the science. Mm -hmm. And I think this, you know, I don't know how popular this opinion is, but I think anything that we do, we're, we're selling something. And I think if you work for industry, it's, that's kind of an obvious way to think about 
what you're selling. I think for someone like me, I'm in education. So I'm selling the fact that you should read the syllabus and study your notes. I, I'm selling the fact that this going through these things is important for your NAPLEX and for the future skills that you need. If you're a clinical pharmacist, you're selling the fact that these consult services are critical for patient care and patient outcomes. So in some regard, we are all selling something, but in order to sell effectively, you have to believe in what you're selling. And that's what I took from that story you shared is it doesn't matter the salary and the benefits package if you don't truly believe in what's a core value for you and believe in what you're selling. And for you, you're selling the science because that trans for you, that translates into the patient outcomes and patient access. It, did I hear you correctly? Is that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the most important things I think is instilling trust and relationship building. Um, it's one of the things about the industry that maybe isn't so obvious, you know, for, for just anyone. And that's fair, you know, it's fair for it to not be obvious. I think though, that as pharmacists in this field, it is our responsibility to ensure that we are sending that message. Yes, I definitely want to touch upon that when you talked about relationship building, for sure. One of the things that I've heard you talk about before, this concept is about harmonization between the FDA and pharma. Can you, can you tell us what you mean by that? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, one thing that when, when I have students or just even anyone, you know, friends, family ask me, you know, kind of like what I do or why is it important that I work with the FDA? The reason why they question it is because they have this image in their minds that it's always us against them. It's always pharma against FDA or FDA against pharma, whatever it is. Um, and the plain black and white truth is that's not true at all. Um, our relationship with the FDA, again, I'm, I'm speaking strictly from a regulatory perspective, is that you need to get to the point where you feel you are collaborating with the agency. And to be able to have that collaboration kind of goes back to what I was talking about before, right? Building relationships, instilling trust, and not just trust with the agency, but also trust with the people of the United States, the people of the European Union, whatever it is. Um, and that's really where the harmonization of FDA comes into play. So, you know, a really good example is kind of just like, you know, any rare disease, honestly, right? You have a rare disease. If that patient population is less than 200,000, then you're looking at something which is called an orphan drug, right? Because we just don't have the patients to study. So FDA takes that into consideration, right? They're not gonna be like, we want a 400 person trial in this very, very rare disease, which you're gonna have a very hard time enrolling, and it's gonna take you 10 years to enroll, and then we'll decide if it's a good enough drug, right? They're working with us to understand the fact that we need to get access to these patients. How can we do it in an expedited manner that is still safe and effective for the people that we are trying to serve? So that's just, you know, one example when I talk about kind of the harmonization. Um, and, you know, it, it can go from something as basic as a designation, such as orphan drug designation, all the way to how we design our clinical trials and really kind of working with them into how that strategy looks like. What does that look like? How many patients do we need? How long should they have been suffering for the disease before they're allowed to be enrolled into our trials? These types of things are really the collaboration piece that I like to focus on and that I think that, in my opinion, 
all regulatory professionals um, do try to strive for because we are the interface with the agencies. Yeah, thank you for explaining that. And I really like the way you phrased it with the harmonization and relationship building and trust building. And I feel like these are very positive ways of looking at these types of relationships. The, the collaboration that you speak of, I think that words are powerful and it means so much more than FDA restrictions or FDA limitations. It's, it's more open and it's more welcoming and it's more reflective of what really happens. So I'm, yes. thank you for, for ex expanding on that. So it, you've had this experience as a technician starting very young in Walgreens, working all the way through pharmacy school and even when you started med school, and now you have this 30,000 foot view in pharma, uh, helping patients on a very different level. But you've talked so much about instilling trust and relationship building. Why are building relationships in pharmacy so important to cultivate? And you can draw upon any of your experiences, but yeah. you have such a vast uh, experience so far. I'm just curious, what have you seen? Why is it so important? So I think that that my answer would be two pronged, right? The first would be probably more related to my experiences in the industry and the second just for the general pharmacy profession. So I'll start with with my experiences in the industry. The thing is, is that obviously I'm coming from a regulatory perspective, but the pharmacists that I have worked with in the industry are in all functional areas you know, business development, commercial, clinical development, PKPD, I mean, medical affairs, you name it, we're there, right? So I think that by cultivating these relationships and being on the same page for the end goal, professionally and what you do on a day-to-day, it just becomes innate, you know, it just becomes so natural. And obviously, you know, another PharmD to a PharmD or a BS Farm, whatever it is, you know, if you have the pharmacy background, you naturally have that connection. I also think that connection comes in general with, you know, all healthcare providers, you know, because we kind of have the same vision. Um, but, you know, professionally speaking at work, those relationships are very important to just keep keep going because at the end of the day, you're, you're all trying to get to the same goal. Um, I think for the pharmacy profession at large, I think that we all need to really bring awareness to the different opportunities we have in this profession. And I say this because I think when we bring in awareness, we also bring in respect for each other. We bring in this concept that you are so valuable to the pharmacy profession in your own capacity. Because, you know, if I was talking to one of my friends in clinical pharmacy who was like the head of transplant, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant pharmacist that I would not be able to do half the stuff that she could do, you know? But to be able to have that respect and that ability to reflect on that and say, wow, that's amazing what she does on a day to day or what he does on a day to day. I think that that allows us to all come together and understand the importance of innovation within the pharmacy field. Innovation is important across pharmacy, whatever it is, right? Patient adherence and community. Um, transplant efficacy and just you know efficiency amongst the medications and the industry drug development whatever it is the, but the point is when we have that awareness with each other and we build those and cultivate those relationships we're supporting each other we're we're really able to be there for each other and also when we do that we're providing opportunities for each other. I read this quote the other day that I loved. It said, like, be in a room full of people that 
are so quickly to mention your name when opportunities arise, something like that. But I just love that concept. And I think that when we build relationships in pharmacy across the board, it doesn't matter what function you're working in, um, that just happens naturally and I think it's great. Wow, I love what you said. When we bring in awareness to the profession, we bring respect to the profession. And it, and it starts with us, even just us learning about what another pharmacist does in a completely different area. You're yeah. bringing a new level of respect to our profession. And so that is just amazing. You blew me away with that one. So thank you. So what kinds of things are you involved in to help share this message? Yeah, so things that I'm involved in is, I mean, right now, I will say I'm pretty early on in my career, right? You know, I just did my fellowship and I have my first full-time role. Definitely not an expert in regulatory by any means. I hope to get there one day. Um, but for now, the things that I do try to do so early on in my career is I try to help students um, kind of navigate their own goals and interests. If that is industry, of course, I'm able to help them a little bit more, right? Um, but even if it isn't, I, I love helping students just to kind of figure out what that passion is. I do give webinars and different types of talks about leadership and just pharmacy in general, um, more so on the industry side. But again, whenever I have the opportunity, I love to share this message that it doesn't matter, you know, if you want to do industry or not. I think one thing that I have come to learn in all of the research and talking to my mentors and talking to other people is that the skill sets that are required for the different pharmacy professions are essentially the same. And I think that that is something that sometimes gets lost to the cracks when we're so focused on one vision for ourselves. Um, and that is something that I truly do like to continue to remind students is that it doesn't matter if you decide you want to do residency your first year or your fourth year or your industry before you walk to pharmacy school or two months before graduation. Um, the skill sets are essentially the same and you can thrive. It's just about putting your mind to it. Wow. Can you just expand on that for a minute when you talk about how the skill sets are generally the same? Do you mean in terms of I still need to go through the same kind of required steps like classes rotations or do you mean the same types of emotional intelligence the quote unquote soft skills those are needed what do you mean by the same set of skills it's a little bit of both and what i'll say is that one thing that i have come to realize and and i have come to realize this just through the inspiration of others stories is that the uniqueness of what we can bring to the table from a pharmacy perspective, again, whether that's community, clinical, or industry, or PBM, whatever it is, right, is that we have the hands-on experience and strong perspective of how to interface with different stakeholders, whether that is the patient, whether that is the payer, whether that is the healthcare provider, or if you're really interested in policy and development, all that, Congress, whatever it is, we have been given the knowledge, the skill sets, and the experience in pharmacy school, whether that's through your labs, whether that's through your rotations, or whatever it is, through guest speakers that come, we know how to cater to those different audiences. And each of those audiences is important, right? It doesn't really matter what area of pharmacy you're in. Um, so that's one thing. I also do think that when it comes to this, the soft skills, the emotional intelligence that you kind of talked about, absolutely. You know, that's the same no matter what area of pharmacy you're in. Communication, 
having confidence, again, relationship building with your perfect, your, your patients and providers and all of that. Um, it's required for all of us. And I think that those are some of the things that kind of make me remember that it's the same for everyone. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it reminds me of when we tell students that this course or this class is required for your next level. What you're saying is communication, confidence, relationship building, those are required for yeah. what the future of pharmacy needs. Absolutely. So we've talked a little bit about regulatory affairs, but let's pretend someone listening has no industry background, is really unfamiliar with the different types of roles in industry. Describe for us, what does regulatory affairs mean? Yeah. So regulatory affairs, if you look at the textbook definition, right, what we're seeing is that you are the liaison between the industry company and the health authority. So you are the person who is um, sending in the submissions, or sending in information about your trials, sending in periodic updates about the safety and efficacy of your drug because FDA does require those reports from time to time, um, that you are that interface. Now, that is a very black and white in textbook definition. <laughs> and I think over time, that definition has evolved. One of the biggest pieces of evolution of that definition is where in regulatory affairs do you want to work? And we kind of talked a little bit about that already, right? Strategy, advertising, promotion, CMC, things like that. Um, so now what I think the definition of regulatory is, is yes, you are the liaison between the pharmaceutical company and the health authority, but you are also that innovate, you are the interface that is able to really send the messages of your asset, of your product to the health authority. Of course, does regulatory spearhead all these messages? Absolutely not. You know, one thing that I love about regulatory is that it's so cross-functional. Um, so the, the messages that we do need to ensure that the health authorities understand from our data, from our science, come from so many people, whether that's medical affairs, from commercial, from clinical development, right? Because they're, the, they're really the meat of, of, of designing these trials. So, you know, that's really what, what regulatory strategy is, <laughs> is that interface between the health authority um, and uh, the company. Now, the other facets, regulatory, advertising, and promotional, I'll just give an example of one. Um, but honestly, all the, all the commercials you see on TV, all the magazine ads, all of that stuff that you see is direct-to-consumer advertising, right? Um, and that's just one example of what they do in Adprom. There's so much more that goes on. This is just one example. But... In DTC, all the decisions that are made behind the scenes, is it accurate? Is this information correct? Is the way we are presenting the data on the screen easy for a patient to understand? Or is it some far-fetched message that we're trying to send? These types of conversations and these types of decisions are what an ad, you know, an ad promo regulatory affairs specialist would focus on. So just a couple of examples. I'd be happy to elaborate more if, if that's not clear. No, that makes a lot of sense. And I was wondering if you could just review what's a typical day like for you? Yeah, so, you know, um, right now, obviously, with working from home and being remote and everything, um, a typical day for me is obviously just a lot of meetings. <laughs> but it's really about what we do in those meetings um, and kind of how we are working to progress the different 
developments of the projects that I'm on. Um, I support a rare disease product called Tepeza for thyroid eye disease. Um, and so there are many different areas that we are trying to branch the product. Um, and so really to be able to keep track of those different areas is kind of what I work on. Um, another thing that's really important, especially for products that are approved, is this concept of life cycle management. And I did kind of mention that earlier too, that the FDA does require um, for all drugs to, you know, repeatedly and periodically submit information to make sure that we're still on track and that, you know, there's no safety signals or anything like that. Um, so really just maintaining and keeping track of those types of requirements as well as part of my day to day. It's, I wish I could go into more depth of what my meetings are like, but <laughs> um, that's really about probably as vague and as accurate as I can be right now. Great, thank you for sharing. What would you want students and new grads to know about working in pharma? I think what I would want them to know is that just like any other field of pharmacy, I think that the industry provides so much growth opportunity for our profession um, that it should be given a chance. A lot of people feel like, oh, but I don't have the business acumen <laughs> and I don't understand, you know, all the numbers and what's needed to sell a product. Kind of what I, you know, reflected on before, it's not all about that, right? There's still so much more that goes into drug development. And I think that one message that I'd like for pharmacy students to remember is that what they can bring to the table and how it can impact the innovation of drug development is, is on them. And it is something that we absolutely have the capability to do. And um, you'll only know that if you try or if you talk to someone, you know, try to learn more. And if it's not for you, it's okay. But at least, you know, you have a chance just to check it out. Yeah, and I think that goes with what you were saying earlier about if there's someone that doesn't really feel like they have a strong business background, you could be in love with the science of it and absolutely. feel really passionate about the patient experience. And that could lead to a phenomenal pharma experience. Yeah, exactly. Okay. I know you're new in your career, but I always like to ask what's next for you and where you want to grow professionally. Yeah, so, you know, there are two areas of my professional development that I've always kind of focused on. Um, in terms of a regulatory perspective, right now, um, I'm hoping <laughs> to be what is called a GRL. It's called, that's a global regulatory lead. Um, and that is kind of what I hope to be, whether that's, I don't know, seven years, 10 years down the road, or maybe sooner, who knows, but, um, you know, got to take it a day at a time and be patient. Uh, but I do hope to be a GRL one day. I hope to have ownership of an asset and really take that asset to development um, all the way through approval with the, with, with the health authority. I think that'd be an amazing experience and something I hope to be able to bring back to the patient populations that I serve. Another part of my um, growth professionally is really my dedication to my own leadership development. Um, I don't just want to be a leader that has like a title, you know, of like people management and oh, she manages like a hundred people or whatever it is. My personal, I guess, drive to becoming the leader who I, who I hope to be is to be a leader that is able to provide an environment that is authentic and that drives innovation. And that doesn't mean that I'm the one making those decisions to drive the innovation. I hope to be able to provide an environment as a leader that actually encourages inspiration amongst 
others. I want others to be able to feel inspired to bring that innovation and to be able to support their vision and hope that we all have the same vision at the end of the day. Can you lead all of us? <laughs> <laughs> that would, that no. would be wonderful. <laughs> I think pharmacy needs more of that. So uh, yes, I think that's an awesome vision for sure. Tell us about one or more of your mentors and how have they helped you? Yeah, so I thought about this question and I actually like literally have a list and I've narrowed down that list, you know, and, and to say that I only have one is absolutely not true. Uh, and I'm sure many students have heard this, you know, time and time again, you have different mentors for different things, you know, it could be professional, it could be life related, whatever it is, but there are a few people who I do want to give a shout out to because I really do think that they helped me get to where I am today. Um, and I'm doing this chronologically based on like when I met them and all that. Uh, you know, first and foremost, James Alexander, founder of IPHO, really helps me uh, solidify this career path for myself. After that, um, Lee Morka from AbbVie, and then my UCB colleagues, Aaron Hassan, Jennifer King, Deb Hogerman, and now my uh, newest mentor, who I'm very excited to start working with, Nicole Pothas at Horizon Therapeutics. Um, what did these mentors give to me is two things that I think really resonated with my development, and that is time and opportunity. They really gave me the time to explore myself really gave me the time to help me understand what I wanted in a career. And also just taking out the time to meet me for lunch, talk to me for an hour. If I, you know, had something that I was really confused about at work, I could easily text one of them, call them up, be like, hi, do you have five minutes? And you talk to you, know, and, and they would do it hands down, like no questions asked. Um, the other piece is opportunity. And I think that when we give opportunity to others, we really allow them to thrive in their own capacity. Um, and also giving that opportunity, the opportunities that I have been given have also shifted my mindset to say, if someone is giving me this opportunity, it's because they believe in me. And if they believe in me, then I want to make them proud, right? And I want to try my best to do what I can. But at the same time, if they are giving me this opportunity, they also feel it's an opportunity that will help increase my development. And if there's something that I'm not doing right, I need to take that as positive criticism so I can do better. And with those two things, time and opportunity, and then all the other things I just kind of mentioned, I think those are really the defining moments for me in my career and what my mentors had to offer. I mean, those are beautiful gifts, time yeah, and opportunity. <laughs> I mean, we can't ask for anything more from the people who are giving us those things in our lives. So. That's awesome. What inspires you, Tanya? You know, uh, what inspires me, I, I think, are two things. And the first is really hearing about other people's journeys. I love to hear about people's successes. I love to hear about how people were able to overcome animosity, hurdles, whatever it is that didn't stop them from being where they are. Um, another thing that inspires me is being given the chance to help others figure out 
what, where their strengths and where their passions lie. I know that I was in a position once when I was, you know, contemplating medicine and pharmacy, you know, really, what did I want, you know, in a career, in a life? And to be able to have people to support me to figure that out, I think that now that I have been blessed to do the same for others, that really inspires me in my journey and to honestly keep going and hopefully be able to keep on doing that for students and, and anyone really. Do you have a favorite quote or a mantra that speaks to you? I do, and I actually wrote it down because I didn't want to um, <laughs> say it incorrectly. Uh, but basically, it's kind of, it, it goes back to the leadership aspect, right? And, and so the quote reads, the role of a leader is not to come up with all the great ideas. The role of a leader is to create an environment in which great ideas can happen. And I think this quote is from a book called Start With Why, is really what has shaped what I hope for myself and for others, you know, whatever it is in the future. So that's kind of something that I continually just think about from time to time. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me because it, it's what you spoke about earlier about the leader yeah. that you want to become, creating that environment. So that's, that's wonderful. And I, I love that book and I love Simon Sinek. So yeah. I think that's great. Uh, so before I ask you my last question, what social media platforms are you on and how can people connect with you? Yeah, so I'm on uh, LinkedIn. It's probably the easiest way to connect with me. I'm also on Instagram. That's more of just kind of like a personal account. Not too active on it, but um, when I do feel strongly about something, there's something, you know, in the news or whatever, I, I do like to share my thoughts and opinions in a safe space. <laughs> um, but yeah, probably LinkedIn would be the best and then Instagram for more personal connections. Great. Okay. So we'll definitely reach you over there on LinkedIn and I'll post your uh, LinkedIn URL at the bottom of the show notes here. So my last question is thinking about all the experience you've had way back to the 16 year old working at Walgreens and all your six months of medical school experience and thinking about what lies ahead and wanting to be a GRL. Mm -hmm. What impact do you want to have over the course of your career? And I know that's a big question and you don't have to have it perfectly envisioned, but what, what impact you think you want to have? I think at this point, and from what I have been exposed to so far and the experiences that I've had in my short career, I think right now, one of the biggest things that I would like to continue to work on is this concept of the public profession of what the pharmaceutical industry has to offer. This concept of what we do on a day-to-day, -day, what we do for patients, how we work with the FDA and that harmonization piece that I talked about earlier. Um, for now, I think that is one of the most immediate things that I want to continue to work on. Um, not only just to create awareness of what we do, but also to be more confident in myself and to be a re better regulatory professional um, in general. So I think that's really the biggest thing for now. <laughs> I think that's great. And I think that's top of mind for any of us in the pharmacy profession. We just want to help get the perception the public awareness of what we do day to day and how we impact patients on a very real level. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's on the top of all of our minds. So I'm looking forward to seeing your content that you put out on LinkedIn <laughs> or, or your webinars. And I just want to thank you so much for this interview. I have don't think I've taken this many notes during an interview before. So I'm going to be definitely taking the time to reflect on all of these value bombs that you just uh, laid out today. But I really want to thank you for taking the time to share this with our community. 
Of course. No. And again, Brooke, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to be on your podcast. Again, I, I love your message. I love what you guys do. And I'm really proud to be a part of that message now. Thank you, Tanya. Take care. Bye. Thank you, Tanya, for an amazing interview. Here are my takeaways. My favorite quote from the interview is, when we bring an awareness to the profession, we bring respect to the profession. I loved how she talked about how her mentors gave her the time and opportunity to explore herself. She also talked about how instilling trust and relationship building is the pharmacist's responsibility. Thank you, Tanya, for such insight, and I wish you the best in your career. Please connect with our guest on LinkedIn, and please follow us on social media, 21st Century PharmD. If you know someone who I should interview, please email me at 21stCenturyPharmD at gmail.com. We also have a Facebook group that's for pharmacists, new grads, and students. Check us out.